What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Until the past few months, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal was a name few Americans could identify outside of the folks in the Seattle district she represents. But in the past few months, Jayapal, the chair of the Progressive Caucus in Congress, has emerged as a central player in negotiations over President Biden's economic package. Born in India, raised in Indonesia, Jayapal has a most remarkable personal story. I sat down with her earlier this week before a virtual audience at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics to talk about her journey and the state of play in Washington during a critical period for the Biden presidency. Here's that conversation. Congresswoman Jayapal, welcome. We, we had hoped to see you in Chicago, but you've got a big day ahead of you there in Washington. I do. And I wish I could come back. You know, I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, so it is has been home to me and hopefully we'll make that happen soon. But um, yeah. I'm glad I could do it virtually. Look forward to that. You, you're there for the signing of the uh, of the infrastructure bill, the long awaited signing of the infrastructure bill. And you were very instrumental in the process of getting that uh, past. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But so everybody's come to know you in the last few months as the leader of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, but your story is quite remarkable. And I and I don't think people know that. And I'd love to start there, starting with uh, your birth in Chennai and in, in India. Talk about your early years before you came here, which was when you were 16 years old. That's right, David. I was born in Chennai. Uh, at the time, it was called Madras. And I lived in India um, for about five years. And my mom is uh, a teacher, uh, teaches English. And my dad um, actually worked for an oil company then called Esso. And back then, this was 1969, 1970, there were very few people that left India. I mean, it was considered, a you know, kind of a a crazy thing to do. But my father had the travel bug and he said to his company that he would love to go what was called overseas. And so he was posted to Jakarta, Indonesia. This was 1969, 1970. There was one hotel, um, actually maybe two hotels in downtown Jakarta at the time. It was mostly paddy fields, rice fields, not at all developed. And I went to school there. Um, uh, at an international school for almost 12, 10 years in between, spent two years in Singapore. Um, and, you know, my family was a kind of a middle-class family, but not a lot of savings. And for whatever reason, my father decided that America was the place that I was going to get the best education. And he always talked about America and what opportunity America offered. And so when it came time for me to go to college, um, he had actually gone through a really tough time. He had lost his job. Um, but he always said, I'm going to send you to America for your college education. And um, 
that is what he did. He took his 5,000 bucks and he sent me over here by myself. So I landed at 16 years old um, with two suitcases, uh, you know, in, in this new country. I want to talk about what that was like. But first, you mentioned your mom was a teacher. You, you, your family had a lot of highly educated uh, people. You had a lot, and particularly among, among women, you had some real role models. I think your grandmother may have been one of them. My great aunt, actually. So this was my um, grandmother's sister. Uh, my grandmother was amazing. Also, she um, she just finished high school, got married very, very young and was remarkable, you know, played tennis, did all these things that Indian women and saris were not supposed to do back then. Um, but my great aunt was somebody who uh, this was my grandmother's sister, mm -hmm. who was one of the first OBGYNs in the country, female OBGYNs in the country. In fact, she wrote the seminal text that is used in medical schools to this day on, um, uh, you know, reproductive health. And she was really out there in the villages and much, much later when I would go and live in villages in India for two years and people would find out that I was PK Davies grand niece, they would literally get down on the floor and, you know, want to want to touch my feet in honor of her. Um, she was really remarkable. And of course, she has a there's a connection there to our new vice president, um, Kamala Harris, because her uh, aunt was a protege of my great aunt, if you can believe it. Mm. They ended up being deans of the same medical school um, after each other with many years in between. What did the moving around do for you as a child? How did it shape your approach to to life, uh, uh, moving from India to Indonesia, spending the two years in Singapore, um, a lot of a lot of travel, and then you mentioned you're in an international school with people of varied backgrounds. How did that orient you? I think I felt like the world was a really small place. You know, I, I was so interested in the rest of the world, and we I met people from all over, and it definitely fueled my interest later on in working around the world. But mine was a very global perspective. I, I did, I, you know, I, I, I think there are a lot of people who feel like the rest of the world is very far away. And for me, it was very close. I felt like I could take my arms and just wrap them around the globe because I knew somebody from almost, well, not every country, but a lot of countries. And I knew them well. Um, and we talked about international affairs all the time. We talked about what other places were like and people's experiences. And so that became very normal for me. And it definitely was a big change when I came to the United States and even in Washington, D.C., which is where I first landed. Um, that wasn't really the case. You know, there weren't there weren't that many people who were talking about what was going on in the rest of the world. Yes. Well, that's a uniquely American thing. We're surrounded by oceans and we we often don't think that way. But what about being a 16 year old? 16 is pretty young to arrive at an American university anyway. But to arrive at an American university, having never set foot in America before, I mean, what was that experience like? It was, I think for a long time, I just locked away any part of it that was not great, you know, I, because I, had, I was here and my parents were sacrificing so much. And, and I just sort of felt like, and it's a typical immigrant story in many ways, you know, I felt like, okay, I gotta, I gotta succeed. I gotta do what they want me to do. I gotta pay it forward. I gotta make sure that they're, I'm giving them, you know, what, what they, what they wanted to see from me. And it wasn't until recently that I went back and read 
all these letters that I had written to my mother and my father that she had kept and they were in a box and I was um, going through them and I realized how difficult it was. You know, I just realized I was here by myself. I didn't know the culture. I was trying to fit in, but I didn't really fit in. Um, I had uh, terrible illnesses. I, I could not handle the change of weather. You know, I was used to walking around with no socks, no closed shoes, and all of a sudden I was getting rashes all over my feet because I had to, I had to wear socks and shoes all the time. Um, we were on an extremely tight budget, and so a lot of my letters home were about how I felt so bad because I had to, you know, buy a pair of long underwear and it wasn't in the, wasn't in the budget. So there were a lot of those experiences that I didn't really connect with until later. I think I just shoved them into a, into a corner. And then there was the other part, which was, which I did remember. And I did talk about all the time, which was how incredible was this to land up in the United States of America, this country that so many people think about coming to and can't get to. And um, the education was amazing. I was at Georgetown University and, um, you know, I, I felt like everything was new and it was exciting, scary, but exciting. And you, you said you did, you did, you, you wanted to fit in, you tried to fit in, but you didn't fit, you didn't quite fit in. I mean, were there overt incidents in which you felt discrimination, in which you felt to be made different? Yes, there were. And I think at the time, I think I brushed over them as much as possible. You know, Georgetown, I was, I was telling the dean, um, Jack DeJoya is a, is a friend who was actually there when I was a, a freshman at Georgetown, but I was telling him that Georgetown is so different today. I mean, there are a lot more folks of color. There are a lot more clubs for people to express their different ethnicities and identities. That really wasn't there when I was there. And so it was this piece of like just trying to um, make yourself uh, fit, but knowing that you were a bit of a square peg in a round hole. You know, people would ask me where I was from and I would say India. And honestly, even at Georgetown, there were a lot of people who didn't really know what that meant or what, you know, would ask me if I was a princess or if, you know, if, if I had elephants or various things that were funny, but also tiring after a while. Yeah, I heard you had a, a, a poster of the Taj Mahal on your wall and people asked if it was your house. <laughs> they did. They asked if it was my house and I thought they were joking. So I said, well, no, my house is too big to fit on the poster. <laughs> That's the servants' quarters. And then the person said, oh, my gosh, you must be a real live Indian princess, to which I said yes, thinking nobody would believe it until I went to a party a week later and introduced myself uh, as Pramila. And they said, oh, my gosh, are you Princess Pramila? (laughs) (laughs) So you said you wanted to please your folks who had made these sacrifices to... uh... Uh, to send you there, but they, uh, how pleased were they when you told them that you were going to be an English lit major? (laughs) They were not pleased. I got one phone call home a year. That's all. We didn't have Skype or anything, no money. And I used my one phone call to call my dad and tell him I was not going to be an economics major. I was going to be an English literature major. And then I had to hold the phone away from my ear. (laughs) He screamed at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. (laughs) Uh, So you, why did you become an English lit major? 
I just loved it. I loved words. I had my grandfather was quite influential in my life, and he was um, he was he loved words. He had every dictionary possible from everywhere. Every morning, I would go for a walk with him, and he would learn three new words from the dictionary, and then he would make a point to use those words all day long. And he would argue about the etymology of words, and you know, he was a bit of a he, he loved words. And my mom was, of course, an English literature major as well. And I just loved reading. I loved language. I felt like, and this is what I said to my father, he was unconvinced. I said, if I'm able to speak and write and read, everything else will be possible. And um, he was like, no, you need to be an economist. You need to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, something with uh-huh. skills. Kind of a classic thing. Yeah, exactly. Immigrant story. And like most English lit majors, you graduated and headed to Wall Street. <laughs> yes, that was sort of the deal um, that I made with my dad as he was, as he was unhappy with me. Um, he said, how are you going to survive? What are you going to do with an English major? We cannot afford anything else. We've used all our savings. And I said, Papa, I called him Papa. I said, Papa, I will get the same job with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree. And, um, and that's what I did. I got, I got multiple um, offers from investment banks on Wall Street and um, went to work for Payne Weber at the time. It was called Payne Weber in the leverage buyout department, and which was a very hot time to be there, mid-1980s. Mike Milken was king, junk yeah. bonds were huge. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and that was really to satisfy my father, to be totally frank. And what was the experience like? What did you learn? I learned a lot. I um, was one of only very, very few, maybe the only um, person of color there. I can't remember now, but certainly just a handful. Um, And, you know, it was a it was a a tough life, really um, a lot of work. And you were defined by whether you worked a 20 hour week or 22 hour week or 22 hour day. Um, But I learned a lot about numbers. I got so comfortable with numbers and, you know, understanding spreadsheets and navigating spreadsheets. And I also learned that I absolutely did not want to do that for the rest of my life. And I always tell young people the experiences that teach you what you don't want to do are just as valuable as the experiences that teach you what you do want to do. And I just saw so many crazy things happening there, you know, leverage buyouts, companies going into bankruptcy that didn't need to go into bankruptcy, um, all the ways in which Wall Street is really geared to, in many ways, drive out um, small businesses and, and reward, you know, investment bankers and lawyers and, and uh, just a few people who make a lot of money on those deals. But then you went to business school so that you obviously didn't divorce yourself completely from from your experience there. What what made you decide to go to business school or was it just the, the best way out of there? Kind of. It was kind of the best way out of there. They offered for me to stay. I didn't want to stay. And I was like, OK, now what do I do? And remember, I was on immigrant visa, too. So if I wanted to stay in the United States, I either had to get another job or I had to Um, or I had to go back to school. And so I decided that that was the trajectory for most people. They would work for two years in investment banking and then go to business school. 
And so I did, but, and that's when I landed in Chicago. Yes. But I was looking for On the wrong side of town from the University of Chicago perspective. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. What can I say? No worries. No worries. We won't hold that against you. My sister did go to University of Chicago. So, you know, we kept it in the family. All right. Good, good, good. Yes. So anyway, so you went to Kellogg and did you know what you wanted to do when you headed there? Did you have a plan? Um, not really. I knew I was. I knew I wanted to do something with policy, and so my majors were in marketing and and management policy. But while I was there, I was already exploring, and I came down to your side of the uh, of town to South Chicago. Met a wonderful woman that you probably know, named Mary Houghton, who mm-hmm. at the time was running South Shore Bank, and she yes. really changed my life. Tra- changed the trajectory of how I thought about okay, how can I apply business skills in a way that is about justice, that is about, um, you know, making society better? And uh, that, was a, that was really a transformative experience for me. Yeah, South Shore Bank was, a, uh, was really an interesting place. It was a really progressive, for, for a bank, was quite progressive and very focused on community investments. That's right. Redeveloping the South Side and really putting at the time you know what would be seen as racial equity more front and center and i think that was that was really important to me and then you went and sold cardiac defibrillators <laughs> yeah it was another you know in between business school years uh i went to work along the borders of laos and cambodia um in refugee camps for the largest nonprofit possible and this is again my fa- poor father is just rolling around saying what <laughs> is happening to my daughter you know what is she doing i was counting chickens and figuring out rural economic development but i loved it i loved it and i came back and i was like okay now what do i do uh, now i had loans to pay off from business school and still just trying to find my way you know i always say like it's it's uh, people think it's just a linear path to where you want to go, but there's so much that's gained from not being linear. Yeah. So I, I did. I went to work for a physio control, which was a medical defibrillator company. Um, and I was stationed in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and I covered Western Indiana and Eastern Ohio and or sorry, Western Ohio and Eastern Indiana. And I had a, I drove a Ford Aerostar, a blue Ford Aerostar van, which at that time I had to put telephone books under my bum because (laughs) the seat didn't go up back then. (laughs) And I drove around with a cart to all these fire departments and hospitals and sold defibrillators and did it long enough to make sure that I was the number one sales rep and then said, okay, I'm done with this. Gotta, gotta go. Yeah. And you made a pretty stark transition to uh, uh, an organization called PATH program for appropriate technology. And it was all about bringing these technologies to underserved nations, to to developing nations. How did you identify that? Well, that was really, I I had said goodbye to the private sector. I was like, okay, now I'm done. Now I'm really going to figure out what I want to do with my life. And when we moved to Seattle, that organization caught my eye immediately because it was about international development, global health, women's health. You know, going back to my great aunt who I mentioned, um, this was something that had been in our blood. And and with my experience traveling all over the world and at that time speaking a number of different languages as well, it was just the perfect place for me. And they wanted um, somebody to lead a fund called the Fund for Technology Transfer that made um, small loans, in many ways, very similar to Shore Bank and Grameen Bank and you know, all of that. 
to health projects around the world. I, I just loved it. And I grew the fund and we had a 98% repayment rate. We never took collateral for anything. And we just got to work on the most amazing projects in Indonesia, Africa, Latin America, all over the world. A lot of them having to do with healthcare, right? All of them having to do with healthcare. Yeah. Very different, very diverse. I mean, you know, I funded a clinic in uh, Sierra Leone, a primary health healthcare clinic in Sierra Leone. We funded a social marketing campaign to fight back against AIDS um, in Indonesia. We funded a technology um, to help get injectable contraceptives for women in Mexico. Very, very different kinds of things, but all health related. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. And then you got this fellowship to go back to India uh, and, and basically study and write. Uh, for a couple of years. What was that like to go to go home? It was amazing. It was amazing. I had been working in this for this nonprofit international development organization. And what I realized, David, is that the world of international development, particularly back then, was um, didn't have a lot of people of color, didn't have a lot of people from other countries, particularly in the big international development, international aid organizations. And I just realized that I didn't want to be one of those people. I was climbing higher and higher in the organization, but I wanted to go and live in villages. There's just a, there's a, a, a strange, you know, uh, there's just a strange thing when you're working in international development, you're staying in five-star hotels, and then you're going to villages and and talking about economic development for the poorest of the poor. And it felt out of sync for me. And so I just decided I was going to go live in villages for a couple of years. And I found this wonderful fellowship that allowed me to do just that. Really no plan. All I had to do was write a newsletter once a month on some topic of my choosing. And um, I could live wherever I wanted. And all my expenses were paid. There was no salary, but everything was paid for. And um, and I just, you know, I, I moved all over India. I spent some time in Kerala, which is my home state. I spent time up in Ladakh along the border of uh, uh, China and India in that region. Um, and then most of my time I spent in the poorest state in the country, Uttar Pradesh, which is in the north, um, in the town of Varanasi and in the villages outside of Varanasi. And it was uh, an incredible opportunity to be proud of who I was for the first time, really, my culture, my heritage, understand it, get to speak Hindi, um, you know, really understand the religion even more, and also just explore how I thought about social justice, how I thought about feminism, the role of women, um, education, really anything I wanted to explore was mine to explore. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, it was. And you also uh, you got a book out of it at the end of that experience, One Woman's Return to a Changing India. Yeah. But you also had an experience there that gave you some insight into uh, this country as well. You, you were pregnant when you were there. Your child was born prematurely, and it was a very tenuous situation. And yet you were being pressured to return to the U.S. to renew your your green card because you weren't yet a citizen. So even though the child's father was an American citizen, the child was an American citizen, you were being told you may you may lose your 
your green card if you don't come back, if you don't leave your child. That's right. It was um, the worst time of my life. Um, Janik was one pound, 14 ounces. They almost oh make it. They were literally the size of a small squash. And um, on every, you know, really born at 26 and a half weeks, shouldn't have made it. Um, lowest birth weight baby in that NICU. There were only two NICUs in India at the time. And Janik was in one of them. And, um, and I was told by INS, then INS, the U.S. government, that I would lose my green card if I didn't come home right then. And I, there was no way I was going to leave Janik's bedside because I didn't know if they were going to live or die. And um, we were able to sort of through connections through the Institute, we were able to address that. And I was finally allowed to keep legal status, but um, my, keep my green card, but n not have any, uh, any of the years that had qualified me for citizenship, those were all wiped out. So I, I was going to have to start again at zero and um, wait several more years to get my citizenship, which I finally did in 2000. Is that still the norm? Yes. If you have a green card, and by the way, it had taken me 17 years to get, you know, to get my citizenship. I mean, it was, I had been on a series of student visas and this and that and everything. Um, so I knew the immigration system pretty well. But once you get your green card, uh, you have to touch home once a year. And my fellowship had been planned very carefully so that I was going to come back in time to do that. But then Janik was born. And um, and so that threw off the plans. And, the, and they said, sorry, no dice. You're going to you're going to lose your green card completely. So it's not just losing your status, but you lose your green card, which meant that I wouldn't be able to come back with Janik when they needed medical care, which they did need a lot of medical care. And I wouldn't be able to be with my husband, who who was an American citizen. Um, so it was extremely stressful and it gave me an early insight into the immigration system and all the, you know, throughout my life, all the different pieces of immigration, which would then end up becoming a big part of my, my work, day-to-day -day work over the next several decades. Now you, uh, you use the pronoun they, uh, because Janik is, is non-binary. Um, how, how has that impacted you and your, 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 your thinking about policy and yeah. Well, Janik is trans and um, they are, they, oh my gosh, they have been such a great teacher for me. I mean, I've always been, obviously I'm very progressive. I've always been a big supporter of LGBTQ issues and, and um, from a policy perspective, but watching Janik go through it and then speaking about it as a member of Congress, I was the first member of Congress to talk about having, a non, at that time, Janik identified as non-binary uh, now I think Janik feels much more comfortable with trans, but um, to talk about it from a public platform and as an Indian immigrant as well, which, you know, there are a lot of just um, so much learning that I think I was able to do watching Janak fully be who they are and, and come into a new sense of self that really should be available for everybody. It shouldn't be this hard. Um, we should embrace and understand uh, that uh, gender identity is core to being. It's not, a, it's not a choice. It's just core to being. And so I think that's been a wonderful lesson for me. And also it's just been great to 
be able to talk about Genic uh, openly and have other people across the country write to me and, you know, young people, uh, South Asian Americans, immigrants, families, moms, dads, write to me um, and say, uh, you've opened my eyes. You know, you've made me understand better. You've made me feel comfortable coming out or you've made me comfortable with my kid coming out. Um, so that's been really fantastic. Yeah, I was going to ask you about parents and your own journey as a parent. I mean, was it challenging for you and in, in, in really understanding the experience? Um, it wasn't challenging for me to, there was never any question that I love Janak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but I think it was like understanding the language, getting used to the pronoun. Um, Janak was very forgiving and gracious with me because sometimes I would forget and I would use their old pronoun and they very rarely held it against me, you know, which I think was great. And, and we also just had a very open relationship about if I had a question, I would just say, I have this question. I'm sorry if that sounds stupid, but can you help me? You know, or sometimes they would even say, and they still do this today. Um, if there's something that I say that they don't feel quite right about, or they feel like it's a projection of, or a stereotype, um, they'll call me on it. And I love that. You know, because it just, I think language changes and we are a product of where we came from. And I think that they've been very good about both receiving and giving instruction about how to think about all of these issues that are in front of us in a very different way. Were you concerned about the barriers and discrimination that Janik would face? I still am. It breaks my heart, you know, and it just is so painful. They were uh, out with a friend and the, the, in LA and the friend was trans and the friend got attacked. And um, it really had a profound impact on Janak. They live in Oakland in part because it is a welcoming trans POC community. And there aren't a lot of places that they feel comfortable going to, you know, and I think that that breaks my heart. Um, they have been thinking about whether or not they can go back to India to see my grandparents, their grandparents, who they love, my parents, and the challenges of being trans in the world, um, but certainly in the United States, are still very, very real. And the danger is very real. And they, they protect themselves. You know, they carry pepper spray. They, they are constantly aware of where they are. They are constantly aware of how people look at them. And I wish that wasn't the case. So, yes, I do worry. I worry for them and I worry for all our trans kids out there and particularly uh, trans people of color um, and trans women really are at the spear, the tip of the spear. We as a country went through a convulsive period from which we still uh, suffer in some ways after 9-11. And you you made a, uh, you responded to the the challenges uh, that, that, 9-11 9-11 posed the particular challenges for uh, Muslim Americans uh, after uh, after that attack. And it kind of set you in another direction. Uh, talk about that and, and your response and how that led you in some ways to where you are today. Very much so. 9-11 happened and I had just moved into a new house. I had just gotten divorced. I had a brand new baby, was still quite sick. Janik was still dealing with a lot of medical issues. 
And a friend called me from the East Coast and told me about what had happened. And I pulled a little nine-inch TV. That's all I had, David, a little nine-inch TV out of a box and watched the images. And it led me to go on and start what became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state. I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was just starting an effort to take on hate crimes by individuals against other individuals. And I actually met my congressman for the first time because I wanted to do a hate-free zone press conference. I wanted to establish Seattle as a hate-free zone. And somebody was like, go see Jim McDermott, your congressman. And I was terrified. I had never spoken to a congressperson before. And uh, at 11 o'clock at night, I was like, oh, I got, I got to hand him something, you know, to look like I know what I'm talking about. So I wrote up this one page that um, had hate-free zone campaign of Washington at the top and then some really big mission statement and then four platforms. And I handed it to him the next day when I met him and said, we need to do a press conference. We need to establish Washington as a hate-free state. And um, we need to do a press conference, you know, uh, tomorrow with the governor, with you, with the mayor, with everybody that's important. And I just remember him leaning back in his chair, kind of tipping back in his chair and looking down his glasses at me. And he's like, and who are you? (laughs) (laughs) But we did it the very next day. We got it organized. And I was standing there out of the limelight thinking that my job was done. And there's Jim McDermott. He's copied the one pager I've given him and he's handing it out to everybody and saying, this is Pramila Jayapal of Hate Free Zone Campaign of Washington. And I said, no, Congressman, there is no hate free zone campaign in Washington. And he said, well, you better get going then. And and I did. And we built up a fabulous organization that actually ended up taking on the Bush administration. We sued the Bush administration, prevented the deportation of thousands of Somalis, got some of the best immigrant legislation in the country, in our state. Um, It was a really and fought for immigration reform more broadly. I'm going to compress a bit of your biography. You, you did that for 10 years, and then you ran for the state Senate. You ultimately took Congressman McDermott's seat in Congress when he uh, retired. I saw a quote from you recently, and I really was, uh, I, f- I found it so interesting. Uh, you said, when, when I was an organizer on the outside, I could hold out for the perfect thing. We could say, this is what I want, and we're not going to say yes to something less than that. But as a lawmaker, you actually have to vote yes or no. I find myself having to make the very tough decision about, is this good enough to move forward versus, is this something I can truly embrace? And I think about those two different things that as activists, we don't have to embrace as much. Talk about that. Talk about this journey of yours from being an activist uh, to being a an office holder and now the leader of the progressive caucus in Congress. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that um, I never wanted to be an elected office. Actually, I was not one of the people that wanted to do this, but I ran for office on a theory of change. That Let me just interrupt you. I, I mean, I got the sense that you were somewhat disdainful of <laughs> office holders. I was, I was, I was, I didn't think that there were enough politicians who fought hard enough, frankly. And I didn't think there were enough people who represented communities that needed to be fought for. That's really why I ran. I was the only woman of color in the state Senate when I was there in the state Senate. And then in Congress, I was one of only um, 17 naturalized citizens at the time. And, um, you know, one of only 79, when I first got to Congress, one of only 79 women of color that had ever served in Congress. 
So yeah, it was pretty disdainful. And I, and I kind of felt like real change comes from the outside through organizing. And I'd had great success with that. But what I realized is, wait a second, I'm thinking about this all wrong. What if we think about elected office as another platform for organizing? What would happen if you actually brought organizers from the outside on the inside and you actually tried to organize on the inside and you you know, were able to really drive change in a different way? And so that's why I ran. And um, I think that coming into Congress has been really great. I have worked hard to, it's been a terrible time. You know, Donald Trump has been, was president for my first four years. I was elected the same night he was elected. It was absolutely exhausting and horrifying. And I was trapped in the balcony um, for the insurrection on January 6th. But all of it, David, is about how we bring about real change for people across this country that they can see and feel, not just something they hear about, but they wake up in the morning and they feel differently about their lives and their opportunities. And so it has been a transition because you do have to press a button that is a yes or a no, or you can vote present, but I don't really like to do present very much, but you you have to press a button, yes or no. And so a lot of my time here has been spent figuring out how do you get the best possible deal? And it isn't just by sitting there and waiting for the deal to be done and then deciding whether or not to vote yes or no. It's about all the organizing that happens to get to that point. It's about using every tool in your toolbox. If you identify priorities early and then you work with leadership, with the White House, with whoever is in charge, with the committee chairs, and you organize on the committees and you get those things in and you organize with the outside and you make sure everyone is on a disciplined, consistent message. And then at the very end or along the way, you might have to withhold votes because it is a very important piece of leverage. And you, but you have to, you have to know when you're going to, when that is going to make sense and when it's not, and you have to be willing to, um, at the end of the day, decide whether or not you're going to press that yes button or that no button. And that is different than being an activist. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I want to get back to how you explain this to your fellow activists turned politicians in Congress, because you have a bunch of new members uh, who uh, come from very much the the activist uh, uh, world. And I'm sure these are kind of difficult conversations from from time to time. But you talk about the use of leverage. And, you know, that obviously was something that that you and your caucus applied uh, uh Relative to this infrastructure bill, uh, it was passed in August on a bipartisan basis by the Senate, and 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 you held it up for several months uh, in order to apply leverage to get more into this other bill, uh, social safety net bill, climate bill that is known as the reconciliation bill, kind of a a large catch-all for a number of progressive uh, initiatives. You ended up, you and you, you, you said we weren't going to vote for them unless we got them both. You ended up, and and many of your colleagues, six did not, uh, in your caucus, voted for the infrastructure bill. Was that was that 
leverage used well in the sense that, you know, it took months to get to the point where you ended up voting for the infrastructure bill by itself anyway. And there's still uncertainty about the uh, the nature and ultimate disposition of the reconciliation bill. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was used well. And I'll tell you why. Um, five weeks ago or six weeks ago, when the infrastructure bill first came over to us, which, by the way, I I wish the Senate had not passed that infrastructure bill uh, and had done this themselves, but it came over to us. And um, and it was on a promise that both bills were going to go together. That's what the progressive senators told us. And that clearly then was a promise that did not end up being kept. And now the infrastructure bill was being put forward. And there were absolutely no negotiations on the Build Back Better Act. No negotiations had taken place. 96% of the Democrats agreed, but the 4% that did not, and this was the president's agenda, this isn't some other crazy agenda, this was the president's agenda, um, but th- that 4% had not negotiated on the bill. They were just saying, we don't think it's necessary. Some were saying, we're going to wait until next year. Uh, we, you know, we literally are, are, we just care about the infrastructure bill. And so it became clear that what we needed to do was jumpstart the negotiation on Build Back Better. That's the reconciliation bill that you're talking about. And um, so that's exactly what happened. By holding up the infrastructure bill, uh, not just once, but actually twice, we were able to jumpstart the negotiations so that the ultimate bill, which while it was smaller than the original $3.5 trillion bill, it actually contained all of our progressive priorities that we had laid out six months before. There were deep negotiations between the two senators who were um, still not on board for the reconciliation bill and the White House. There were deep negotiations between the Progressive Caucus and the White House. And we ended up with a largely pre-conference bill, but text, actual legislative text, an actual vote um, on the step right before the final vote, which is the passage of the rule, and a signed agreement that we will vote this through the House this week. And so for me, it feels very clear that had we not done all of that, we would not have a Build Back Better Act. It wouldn't have been discussed. We wouldn't have had language. We certainly wouldn't have a vote in the House, and it wouldn't be largely pre-conferenced as it is before it goes to the Senate. You know, one person who probably feels differently is Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. And you hear a lot of people say, hey, if this infrastructure bill had passed, uh, this was such a close election, he would have had something to point to and Democrats would have had something to point to going into the November 2nd or 3rd, I forget which date it was, a second, I guess, election. Um, Do you regret not having been able to uh, get this done by then? Well, um, two two things there. One, I wish we could have gotten Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill passed three months ago. We had a few Democratic holdouts, and they weren't progressives that were uh, not making that happen. But secondly, I think just to Virginia specifically, I you you are an expert on politics. There is nobody that can tell me that a twelve point swing in a state is because Congress didn't pass one bill. Um, in fact, I watched all the attack ads in the lead up in the weeks before the election. Not a single one, David, was about Congress not passing the infrastructure bill. All of them were about education and schools and unfortunate topics that um, the right is trying to use to divide us. 
Now, on top of that, I would say, and I said this publicly, uh, you know, as, as nicely as I could, that if somebody wanted to talk about Congress and what Congress has or hasn't done, anybody that was running should have talked about the fact that we passed a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. We got shots in arms beyond what was ever conceived of when President Biden came in, thanks to his leadership. We got money, hundreds of millions of dollars to small businesses across Virginia and across the country um, through, our, uh, through our rescue plan. We were able to get checks in people's pockets, money in people's pockets. And that is what everybody who was running should have been talking about. We cut child poverty in half, thanks to the child tax credit and the American Rescue Plan. So there was a lot that could have been discussed in terms of what Congress has done. I never really understood why, um, you know, why anybody would want to focus on what we haven't done. And I also think the other lesson out of Virginia, David, is that we cannot run on somebody being linked to Trump or us being not Trump. We have to run on a real platform of what we stand for, what we're delivering for. And remember that every election is local um, and it needs to be kept local. And we need to understand what people are feeling on the ground. Some of the local verdicts seem to be a repudiation of progressivism on some level. You know, your own city of Seattle had a mayoral race that very much turned on policing and how far police reform should go, how you balance police reform and safety. You had a prosecutor's race like uh, about that as well. Minneapolis, we, we saw the same kind of debate. Buffalo, we saw the same kind of debate. Do you think there's been a backlash uh, to some degree? And I don't mean just among white voters, but among voters of color, particularly African-American voters, uh, who often live in neighborhoods where they, they are both uh, uh, the victims of excessive force at times and also of crime. Well, I definitely think that this is a really complicated time. And I think people are feeling a lot of economic pain. And they're also feeling a lot of the crises that we haven't dealt with yet. Racial reckoning is real. And we in Congress wanted to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. In fact, we did pass it through the House to say to black communities across the country, no, it is not okay that we have chokeholds and no-knock warrants and that you can have you know, the knee of a law enforcement officer on a, a person on a man's black man's neck for eight minutes. And yet we're not seeing resolution to that. And we're in fact seeing people trying to turn the discussion of racism and our history of racial reckoning that we need to have in this country against us. So that is all true. The economic realities are all true. But I would just say that for every race we lost, and Seattle's a perfect example. We lost the mayor's race uh, in terms of the, quote, progressive candidate. I would just say both candidates, by the way, are more progressive than pretty much. I should know this. Did you make an endorsement of that race? I did. I endorsed Lorena Gonzalez, who did not win. Yeah, but I know Mm -hmm. Bruce Harrell as well, and I've had a conversation with him, and we're going to work great together. But, you know, at the same time that Lorena lost, Teresa Mosqueda won, and she has she is one of the most progressive council members in the Seattle City Council and took on Amazon and took on a lot of the same issues that Lorena had taken on. Those were the things she ran on. Similarly, we had progressive mayors win in Cincinnati and Boston across the country. So I think that it is very local. You know this. I mean, it is. it very much depends on the conditions on the ground. 
I do think that when it comes to law enforcement, we have to have the conversation about what does it mean to right fund law enforcement, right? Like, what are the things that need to be done that can be done by somebody other than a police officer? And then how do we pass the critical pieces of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act so that there is some accountability and transparency um, around law enforcement. And so that if you're a black person or a brown person or indigenous person, that you actually don't run away when you see a police officer because you're afraid that they might kill you. That is a real conversation that we have to have. Yeah. I, I, I mean, no, w- without question. I mean, and anybody who, I was a, a newspaper, a young college student newspaper reporter in 1973. And one of the first articles I wrote was about a battle over uh, policing in Chicago. That was almost 50 years ago. So this is a longstanding issue. But safety is as well as we in Chicago and you in Seattle and everyone knows. And striking that balance is uh, is important. Just going back to the I, I shouldn't leave the the bills because the 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 uh, while you're going to sign the infrastructure bill this afternoon, there's still a question as to what happens with the reconciliation bill. Uh, tell me what your level of confidence is that because the Senate's good. If you pa- first of all, you're going to pass this bill this week. We're going to pass it this week, David. I promise you we're going to pass it this week. OK. And then it goes to the Senate. What's your level of confidence that the Senate is going to pass it and pass it in a form that you and your colleagues in the Progressive Caucus uh, will accept? Because obviously, uh, in a 50-50 Senate, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, and others have uh, veto power over what the Senate does. And Senator Manchin's outlined a series of objections. So what's your level of confidence about the bill coming back in a form you can accept? Well, a couple of weeks ago, when the president came to Capitol Hill, what he presented was a framework. Um, This was before we got legislative text, which, of course, was what we pushed for and got. But this was a framework of all the major pieces of the bill. It's a $1.75 trillion bill that he said he felt confident that would get 50 votes in the Senate. This was the the framework that had been negotiated with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and other senators. And we decided at that point to take the president's word that he had been in so many negotiations and conversations with those two senators that he really did feel confident and could guarantee, very rare for a president to say something like that, um, but that he had gone out on a limb to say that he would get 50 votes in the Senate for that framework. So I got the Progressive Caucus at that point, which was not an easy conversation, to endorse that framework. And um, and then, you know, there are some things that have been added to that in the most recent version. Um, and so those are the pieces that aren't yet pre-conferenced. But the vast majority of this bill that we're going to pass through the House is pre-conferenced. And so I've also met with Senator Sinema. I've met with Senator Manchin. I know the White House has continued their conversations. And I believe that it will pass and it will pass in a form that reflects and matches the framework that the president negotiated and laid out for us. You know, it seems to me one of the reasons that you have a omnibus bill with a lot of things that people support but don't recognize because it's part of a big omnibus bill is to try and circumvent uh, the filibuster. You mentioned voting rights. Uh, so you you think that... Uh, you think that 
Democrats, I mean, Democrats are facing a lot of headwinds to start with. You feel like the failure to pass voting rights will uh, will, will further impede uh, an already bad situation here. Talk to me about that, because right now it's unclear to at least this observer uh, what's going to happen with a filibuster. There's quite a bit of resistance yet to changing it. Yes, I do believe that, David, that um, not not dealing with voting rights and voter suppression um, is is really going to make it impossible, not just in 2022, but for a very long time after. And um, we twist ourselves into parliamentary pretzels because of the filibuster. The only reason we talk about the parliamentarian is because of the filibuster. And the filibuster is a Jim Crow relic. It was used by Southern segregationists to stop uh, progress on civil rights laws, and it's being used in the same way today. And so if we can't eliminate it, which is what I'm in favor of, we should at least reform it for civil rights issues. And that can include voting rights. It can include uh, other pieces. I think it should include immigration. But at least let's get the voting rights piece through, because it really is having a toxic effect on black and brown and indigenous and poor communities across the country. And so that I feel like is absolutely essential. The plan here was that Senator Manchin would craft his version of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which the House uh, passed, and that if it was his version of what he felt was really essential, um, that he would then try to get Republican senators to come along. But only one did, and the rest of them did not. And so I think that is very clear indication that Republicans have turned to using voter suppression as the next tool. They tried the big lie um, and now they're trying voter suppression and we can't let them win. So I am hopeful that Senator Manchin and others in the Senate will understand that we must reform the filibuster or we really will not have uh, the democracy even the tenuous democracy that we have today. Is that a hope or a prayer? Oh my goodness. It's, um, uh, it's probably both. I probably pray for it. And, um, no, but I, I mean, I mean, how realistic do you think that is? Well, what I've heard from John Sarbanes, my friend, John Sarbanes, who's led the fight in the house and what I hear from leader Schumer and what I hear from president Biden and others is that there is a real recognition that we need to do something on voting rights. And I'll tell you, David, part of the issue for me in terms of moving Build Back Better along quickly is we need to get some other things done here. We need to get voting rights done also. And um, and so this is also about a timetable that is really important that, frankly, on voting rights, I feel like we've already allowed it to go a little too far. So is it a hope? Is it a prayer? It's probably some of both. Um, but it is informed by discussions that I know are happening and some sense that the president is also now weighing in much more than he was before. You've spent a lot of time over at the White House lately. Tell me about your relationship with the, the president. Well, David, you know, um, he wasn't my choice in the primary, as you probably know. Um, yes. But I have really come to respect him tremendously. Um, he is a deeply compassionate man. I believe he has... Um, whether he was progressive before, as some people say, or whether he has become uh, more bold and progressive now, I, I can't tell you because I didn't know him before. But I can tell you that he really believes in this agenda. 
and that the campaign of last year, the candidacies of Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, the progressive movement um, that delivered him Georgia and Arizona um, and many other states across the country have all kind of coalesced to have combined with the economic crisis and the crisis of COVID, all of that has coalesced to actually turn him into our biggest believer in the agenda that he's laid out. And it is a bold agenda. It is the president's agenda, but it is a bold progressive agenda that includes real tax reform, that includes universal childcare, universal pre-K, investments in housing, you know, taking on climate change with actually bringing down carbon emissions, um, taking on immigration. I mean, these are all absolutely essential pieces. The lowering the cost of prescription drugs, not everything we want, but finally a significant dent in the cost of prescription drugs for families across the country. And so I, I have really enjoyed getting to know him. I find him so easy to talk to. And uh, you, you took a picture of, of yourselves and sent it off to your parents, huh? <laughs> well, I told him I needed to uh, get a picture. This was when I was having breakfast with him. And I said, Mr. President, you know, this was towards the end of our conversation. I said, would it be okay if we got a picture? Because um, I told my mom last night in India that I was having breakfast with you. And she said, oh my God, I can't believe my little daughter from a small place in India is having breakfast with the president of the United States. And he leaned forward with a big smile and he said, well, my mom still says, I can't believe that my little boy from Scranton, Pennsylvania is the president of the United States. It was just mm -hmm. a really lovely moment. You know, you, you mentioned he wasn't your choice in the primary. The people, uh, there, there are a lot of moderates who say he was our choice, but he's not governing like, like he ran. And that's one of the reasons why his approval rating is where it is. What say you to them? I think he's governing exactly as he ran. I think he's governing based on the agenda that he ran on, that we Democrats ran on. He's been dealt the toughest hand that we've uh, seen a president dealt in a long time, very narrow margins, but some of the biggest crises that, um, that we've ever seen in this country. And I think he really gets that. And I think he is delivering. If you look at the, um, the American Rescue Plan again, the president deeply involved in shaping that. The bipartisan infrastructure bill, deeply involved in shaping that. The Build Back Better Act, deeply involved in the negotiations and trying to bring everybody together. So I, I don't understand people who say this isn't what he ran on. This is what he ran on and what we all ran on. Just a couple of things. In the last few weeks, we've seen uh, Representative Gosar post a video, uh, in an animated video in which he, he, he kills AOC battles Biden. What should Congress do about that? And let me just twin it up with another thing. 13 of your colleagues voted with you on the Republican side for this infrastructure bill. Some of them have received death threats because of it. They've been threatened with punishment by their caucus. The first one, though, it seems like there will be a move for action on the part of the House. And should there be? There absolutely has to be. I can't tell you how awful it is to be going into Congress every day with these threats of violence against our colleagues, against many of us um, who have received death threats for years now um, in this environment. And the lack of, the, uh, of action by uh, the minority leader, um, Kevin McCarthy, just has to be called out here. He has given in wholly 
to this violence and to the calling of violence, to all of the big lie that the Republicans now stand for. So there has to be action. But, uh, you know, uh, what I fear, David, is that it'll be partisan action and that it won't um, it won't be bipartisan. And this kind of violence should be condemned by anybody. What about you mentioned uh, January 6th? You were trapped along with others. You happened to be trapped with a bad knee. You had just had surgery on your knee. So you were contending with that and trying to run away and ended up with COVID because you were encamped with some of the members who hadn't who hadn't uh, taken precautions, wouldn't wear masks and so on. Or at least I'm sure that that's how you felt. And the whole tenor of our democracy right now and by the way, it's just not not ours. I'm sure you've been watching India and other places as well. Talk a little bit about that January 6th experience and talk about the state of our democracy generally and your concerns about it. It's very fragile. We came so close on January 6th to losing our democracy. And I to be there trapped in the gallery and to be just 10 feet from, 15 feet from insurrectionists pounding down the door searching for us, um, threatening to kill Nancy Pelosi, threatening to hang Mike Pence and, you know, hearing the shots fired, watching all of that happen uh, was traumatic for many members of Congress, but most of all, traumatic for the American people, traumatic for people to see that this is a scene that you never thought would happen in the United States of America in 2021, that this was something that maybe would happen somewhere else, but it couldn't possibly be happening here. But it was the buildup as well, you know, the big lie, um, the continuing refusal, even after January 6th, to admit that it was an insurrection, that it was not tourists walking through the Capitol, or to admit that Joe Biden is the president. I think that is that shows us how fragile everything really is. And we have to deal with misinformation. We have to deal with the social media companies. We have to deal with all of the different ways in which people are today getting information, what that information is, and what it takes to have an educated public. And I don't mean like years of education. I mean, educated about the same facts on the ground and able to see those facts and to fight for a democracy um, over a dictatorship. And so I, I feel very uh, worried about that. I, I think this is a terribly difficult time for our country. And there are a lot of people, as the president always says, there are a lot of people around the world who are looking to see democracy fail. And we are going to have to show that it can work, it does work. And part and parcel of that is the right to vote and the right to some economic security. If you have a country that is so divided in economics, where 1% controls so much wealth and everybody else is struggling just to make it from day to day, you will have people start to lose faith in government. And that is incredibly dangerous. I hate to end it on that sobering note, but perhaps it's appropriate uh, to do that, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. It's, it's good to be with you. We look forward to seeing you at the Institute of Politics uh, sometime in the future. But um, you got a lot of work to do in the next few months, we know, and we will release you now to do it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, David, for everything you do. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. 
brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.